name is Bob Hurt, and welcome to the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree podcast. For this episode of the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree, we will speak with my friend Matt Silverman. Matt is a professional writer who has authored and edited numerous publications on the game of baseball over the years. More importantly, he is a Mets historian who's written many books on the storied franchise, including the 69, the 73, and the 86 Met teams. Welcome, Matt, and thank you for chatting with us tonight. Well, uh, thanks, Bob. Thanks for, uh, for having me. Yeah. Now, uh, Matt, I see that you graduated from Ron- Roanoke uh, College with a BA in English. Um, did you ever imagine the success you were, all the success you were going to have in writing? Is this the, the direction you were hoping to go in or? Well, you know, all the success is very nice of you, but <laughs> I had, I had thought, you know, to be honest, I thought I would have more because I wanted to write, you know, novels and I wanted to do all the stuff, you know, that to get, learn about all these guys in all the English classes. And that just wasn't meant to be, but, um, you know, I never would have thought uh, that I would be able to, you know, carve out a niche um, writing about baseball. Um, you know, and writing about it because, you know, I used to work for newspapers and all and covered a lot of high school and some college games. But um, I, you know, didn't have, I didn't really think I would be writing about professional baseball uh, and Major League Baseball uh, quite as much. So that, that's that been a real pleasant surprise. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I've had, you know, I'm, I'm late into the game, but uh, I've had... Uh, you know, had a little bit of that experience, and it's a wonderful thing to, you know, to kind of marry writing with, you know, your passion. And I, you know, both of us are are passionate about the game, and and uh, obviously passionate about you know writing. So it's it's a nice marriage between the two of them. Now, um, let's see. You have experienced uh, pretty much uh, every element involved in sports writing. Uh, like being a journalist, an editor, editor, and a published author. Do you have any preference of any of the three? Or, well, you know, um, I probably the one I always thought that I would do the most is as an editor. And um, in the last few years, I've actually done a lot more of that, and sort of always had my own uh, editing business. And um, so that's kind of what I ended up doing anyway. The uh, uh, the the um, you know author part I was really surprised at, but it just kind of came uh, out of the blue, and um, I got uh, I had a lot of things that built off a couple of books, and uh, before I knew it, I'd written several of them, and uh, it it worked out pretty well. So I would have to say that between those two, they're my favorites, and the journalist was what I always thought it would be. And after seven, eight years or so, uh, I was really fortunate to be able to go into the publishing business and um, uh, was, was glad to make that change. Wow. Now, how many, how many books? Yeah, I was, I've been trying, you know, I, I went on Amazon and I went on different websites and I was trying to count how many books uh, you've been involved with. But what is, what is the exact number? That you've been involved um, in. Let's see. Well, I've got uh, I've got a bookmark here 
that I, I, I went and I, I, I did that, that homework there. Uh, let's see, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, eight on my own, and nine if you count the novel I did under pseudonym um, McNally Berry, Out of a Dog's Mouth. And then there are four books, three books that I um, co-wrote with someone else um, and The Miracle Has Landed which I did with Saber right um, and you know uh, I certainly I, I did a lot of writing with that but I certainly had uh, some co-authors with that so um, so I guess there's eight well actually nine but uh, uh, I guess ten altogether because I did a golf, uh, golf miscellany right um, right when I did the baseball miscellany book I I uh, I had always wanted to write a book on golf, so I, uh, I, I worked that into the contract as well. So you're, you play the game. You play the game of golf. Yes. I'm not, uh, I'm not terribly good at it, but I definitely am better than I was at baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, the question I, I had, and I wasn't sure about it, is uh, you know you're an avid baseball fan, <clears throat> and you grew up in White Plains. Now, is White Plains uh, Mets territory? You know, is that where the fandom is? Uh... Um, well, you know, when I first uh, became a fan, I you know I thought it was, but um, it's definitely you know when they they like to block out areas uh, that are Mets or Yankees or Red Sox. Uh, that's something that people like to do down there, and. That part of, well, Westchester County definitely falls under the Yankee spell, but I mean, right. I, I know a lot of Mets fans uh, from White Plains and Harrison and all those towns around there uh, near the Connecticut border, and I know a lot of people in Connecticut that were uh, Mets fans as well, and that's supposed to be Yankees and Red Sox territory, but uh, there's definitely um, a lot of Yankees fans uh, there. Def I would say more, um, without doubt. Now, were you always a Mets fan, or did you change over, or, you know? Well, our, our family wasn't really that into baseball, and um, uh, it, it, one of the... Um, one of the books I wrote about this in the, uh, the preface in the 100 Things Mets Mentioned No One Do Before They Die, that our um, uh, fourth grade teacher had for the 1975 opening day, they had, we had, I think, 30 kids in the class, and, or 31, and it was 15 to 15, and I was like doing, I wasn't paying any attention. I had never thought about baseball or really knew anything more than the most rudimentary parts of, you know, I think there were nine players and stuff. And, um, uh, they asked me which team we wanted to watch because we could watch the last hour on opening day. And I looked at the Mets fans, I looked at the Yankees fans. I said, uh, what's the Mets game? And it was really, uh, that it just went from there and I was like completely, uh, absorbed by the game, you know, within, by the end of that summer. Yeah. Now, you've, you, well, I mean, you're obviously a Mets historian. Uh, you've also written, uh, three successful books on the Met teams, the Miracle Mets of 69, the 73, and the 86. Which which one of those did you get the most satisfaction in in writing about? Well, you know, uh, I I did like doing uh, all those, especially because you know they just focused on one year. And to be honest, in the '69 team, I was you know 
I, I was in, uh, uh, I was four years old, right. so I really didn't have any idea what was going on. I didn't have any idea what was going on in 1973, but when I was learning about baseball, they, because it had only happened a few years before, whenever there was a rain delay, they put on the 1973 highlight film, and, you know, they talk about it all the time um, with Ralph Kiner and Lizzie Nelson and Bob Murphy, and... So I had a lot of interest in that, and uh, that was probably been my favorite one to do. But it also happens that in 1986, I lived in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And other than the few games of the week that were available, uh, because we didn't really have an, even have a TV, so we had to you know, make an effort just to watch the game on uh, uh, national TV. Um, I didn't. I hardly saw any of the games until the uh, like the postseason, and uh, that was um, you know that was a lot of fun. Someone had sent me uh, um, a, a bunch of highlights of a lot of games from many years, and especially '86. And I you know spent hours rewatching them and relearning them, and I, I knew about them because I'd written about it, but. I'd never actually seen, you know, the video from it, and that, that part was a lot of fun, too. But I'd say, of those three, the 73 one was definitely my favorite. Well, 73, I mean, the 73 team, that they were the only team in uh, the Eastern Division to have a, an over 500 record, wasn't that correct? Yes, yes, the uh, 82 and 79, I think the Pirates, I think the Pirates finished exactly uh, 500. Right. And... Um, you know, it was just a lot of fun because there was a lot of crazy stuff going on that year. And um, uh, I got to delve into a lot with the Mets. I the book also deals a lot with the uh, Pirates and, uh, not the Pirates, well, it deals with a lot of different teams. Pirates is one of them, but the A's and the Yankees are, uh, you know, it's, it's broken into, you know, three teams. And those are the three, the A's, uh, the Mets, and the Yankees. And for the last year at Yankee Stadium, and the Yankees, to be honest, every time I looked for something that was going on that year, the Yankees had something that was really interesting happening yeah. with the wife swapping, or they had George Steinbrenner had bought the team, or they fired Michael Burke, or, you know, uh, they they fell off a cliff. And uh, they kind of did what the Mets did last year, where they were just really kicking butt all year until August, and then they just fell off a cliff and didn't even finish with a winning record. I know. That was... That, I remember that. I definitely remember that. Now, you know I'm a Pirate fan, obviously, right? You probably... Uh -huh. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I, I do... Uh, I had high hopes for, for the Pirates, you know, because it was... I don't want to say a, a, a futile season, but I thought they might have a shot. But, uh, yeah, the 73 team, I mean, you got to see Willie, Willie Mays at the end of his career. And, and, uh, I mean, it, it was, I think it was a team you, you wanted or you had to root for because it was so unlikely with, with all that they did. I mean, from, <clears throat> from winning the division to, to winning the National League pennant, to, you know, almost winning the, the World Series. I mean, uh, you know, definitely interesting. And, and also, I mean, you had the, uh, the DH that year. Yes, that was a big uh, part of it. That's another reason that I did a lot with the Yankees, because they also had the first DH. Um, and that's what a lot of people remember from that season. And, uh, you know, there's also a lot of stuff going on you know, with politics and all kinds of other stuff that kind of I dealt with a little bit just to kind of put people's heads back at the time because, 
it was just such a different it was just such a different time than uh you know it's not the word we don't not awash in politics and everything now right. but it was um it was just so strange. Yeah. And that, that, that year I do remember because I was a little kid, but it was, you know, the Watergate was on TV all the time. Right, right. Uh, it preempted everything, um, and it was in the paper every day, and, you know, I, I can barely understand all of the complexities of it now, much less while it was happening. Yeah. And it was um, a really, uh, a, a, you know, a weird year, and... Um, you know, there's, uh, I, and it's funny that, yeah, the, the book came out, I think the next year will be 10 years, and I'll still hear about something in 1973, and my first reaction is, I should have been able to get to work that into the book somehow, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, between Watergate and the Vietnam War and, and, uh, yeah, rich, and rich. the Yom Kippur War happened right during the playoffs as oh, well. Oh, yeah. You know, and there was lots of just just crazy stuff. And then the Yankees uh, tried to, you know, baseball, even after the season was over, you know, you had the um, Dick Williams quit the team and wanted to go to the Yankees and thought people, they had a press conference for it and they wouldn't allow them to go there. And, right. Um, it was uh, a really strange, uh, strange thing. <laughs> strange thing. It was sort of the beginning of uh, the battles between Bowie Kuhn and uh, Charlie Finley, although they had been sort of battling already. But he actually won that one because he got Dick Williams to not go there. Right. And Dick Williams didn't go anywhere. I mean... No, he ended up with the Angels, but only yeah. after, you know, all the, the other teams had, had gotten other managers. And then, you know, I think they let him do the All-Star game because it was strange. I don't think they'd ever had a year where they didn't have somebody, you know, to manage the All-Star game who had won the pennant the previous year. Right, right. And so they let him join, and so he had, like, a, you know, a team. Uh, Dick Williams was in the dugout with, like, a, you know, could, could wear a team uniform. Because <laughs> he didn't have a I don't think he, he finally got on there in, uh, just before the All-Star break, I think. Wow. Uh, the Angels. Now, one of my, you know, my next question, you actually answered it. I was going to ask you what year you became a Mets fan, but I guess that would have been 1975, right? When you you were in, in class and, and you picked... Yes, but pick it, was, it was a weird year because that was one of the years that the Yankees and the Mets... Uh, and the Giants and the Jets, for that matter, all played at Chase Stadium. And so my first game was a Yankees game uh, against the Indians at uh, Shea Stadium. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, we um, we went to a Mets game proper, and uh, and uh, it, I, you know, it, was, it was on uh, off the rails from there. Well, you know, 1975 is the year I graduated high school, but I have a, one of my favorite uh, trivia questions is from, like you said, you saw the Yankees at Chase Stadium, that um, I asked people what Yankee manager never, never won a baseball game at Yankee Stadium. And, and, that, and that's, uh, that's Bill Burton, who, that's, uh, who was the guy that the Pirates fired. Like, uh, with three weeks left in the 73 season, too. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I told... He, he won manager of the year and still got fired. I know. <laughs> I actually... I actually used... Well, I used to talk with Bill, you know, fairly... Well, a lot of the old pirates I do. And uh, he said that, you know, he thought, he thought they could have... Uh, 
you know, could have pulled it out and everything. He says, but, you know, Joe Brown had, uh, you know, Danny Murtaugh in the bullpen. And, you know, he says, if I had if I had a chance to get Danny Murtaugh, he says, you know, I would. I mean, there, it seems like a lot of the old pirates have a lot of respect for, uh, you know, Danny Murtaugh. But um, when you were growing up, uh, did you have a did you have a favorite player? Bunch, um, a, a, you know, and I didn't have a lot of bases for there, so it all kind of came organically. Like Dave Kingman was probably my favorite right off the bat. I mean, even without knowing anything about baseball, you still could tell like Tom Seaver was the best player. Right. And plus, everybody would, you know, even if you didn't know anyone of the Mets, they you, you knew Tom Seaver, and so the, you know those two were there. And then I had like guys who. Um, didn't play. I've always had like an affinity for guys that didn't play that I've always rooted for. You know, like Mike Phillips was the played a lot of shortstop because um, uh, Bud Harrelson was hurt, uh, and they had him and Jack Heideman were playing a lot of ball just to you know <laughs> to date it a little bit more. And uh, John Stearns was uh, they got him from Tug McGraw for Tug McGraw or in the Tug McGraw deal, and uh, uh, so he and Del Unser. Um, both came over from the Phillies, and I really like them. And um, uh, I'm still, I'm still livid that they traded Del Unser and Wayne Garrett uh, for Pepe Manguel and uh, Jim Dwyer. While I was uh, I, the one first time I went out of the country, we were only gone for like two days. I come back, and they, they've traded both those guys. <laughs> yeah, I liked uh, John John Stearns and uh, Del Unser. They were like they had like a workman type uh, persona. You know, I mean, they were, you know, like they weren't stars, but they were just hardworking, uh, you know, ball players. But uh, especially John Stearns, I'm surprised you don't hear more about him. I guess, you know, because he was in between, uh, you know, Jerry Grody and then, you know, Piazza and stuff. I think he's the he gets kind of left out of that, you know, that grouping, you know, as as a catcher. But, um, yes, he was one of the few guys they had that you really had to root for, and um, you know there's there's uh, Stearns and there was Lee Mazzilli. I always kind of like Joel Youngblood. That was that was the one trade that made the Midnight Massacre. That actually was a good trade where they traded Steve, uh, Mike Phillips for uh, Joel Youngblood. Um, I guess I think to the Cardinals. But of course the you know the, the other two things <laughs> at the same time were Dave Kingman and Tom Seaver both got traded um, you know that that day but uh, but the other one was actually a pretty good baseball move but uh, even though they traded one of the guys I really liked but um, yeah. uh, Joel Youngblood was definitely an upgrade but uh, all the other guys they got that were not worth it that day <laughs> yeah that was what and M. Donald Grant that was the uh, the uh, architect of the that architect, yeah. yeah and Joe McDonald was the GM who uh, had the you know the um, misfortune to be the one that had to trade Seaver, and then uh, he ended up with the Cardinals and sort of were you know he was essentially you know doing the bidding of Ken Donald Grant with the Mets, and then he goes to the Cardinals and he was essentially doing the bidding of Whitey Herzog and had to trade Keith Hernandez in another you know one-sided deal, except this one uh, worked out much better for the Mets. Right, right. Um, who was um. Yeah, I know you've interviewed a lot of lot of ball players. Who was the best player you ever interviewed? 
I mean, like, as an interview being the best, not so much the best, you know, like Hall of Famer or something. Is there any particular player that you really enjoyed interviewing, gave you a, you know, a good interview? Well, you know, the one, the person I thought was the, you know, really the nicest and went bent over the, the most backwards and like, you know, racked his brain to come up with, like, answer every question and deal with everything that I could have wanted was Bud Harrelson. Yeah. Uh, at the Long Island Ducks, and uh, you know, he spent the whole afternoon there. He pitched batting practice uh, in between, and that was that was a lot of fun. And but uh, but and that was for the Swing and Seventy Three book. But the uh, one other one I did for that, I, I and a couple of them I just kind of got at the the um, you know off the cuff. Wayne Garrett was great. Ron Hodges, I just you know I had a question about something. I'm like I, I looked it up, and he was like a realtor in. Uh, down in Roanoke, actually, yeah. and I just called him up, and he, um, you know, could just we just started, just went right into the whole thing. Uh, you know, he didn't know me from Adam, and uh, we, I mean, I know all about it. You know, he, he had probably the two best moments of his career in 1973, and a, a long career without, you know, being one of the backup catcher, but. Out of all those, I think John Madelak was the best one because he was, besides being a really nice guy. Um, remembered everything as it happened. I mean, there's a lot of you know stuff that you have to watch out for because you know just like people that I know, not everybody's memory is uh, airtight. Except right. you know for the the stories about high school and all that, you don't really have any way of checking. There's like there's a lot of ways to check what happens in a ball game. Right, right. Or what year this happened or that happened or whatever. And he remembered everything and you know answered the tough questions and everything. And uh, had you know, remembered everything well. Although I will say, also uh, Ed Cranepool, I've gotten to meet a few times. Um, I interviewed him for that book, and he was the only one who, on the record, you know, said that uh, Yogi Berra messed up by not, you know, saving starter to pitch Game Seven, uh, Seaver to start Game Seven in the '73 World Series. Everyone else was like, you know, you do what you do, right. and you know, you can't look back. But he was, he wasn't afraid to go there, and like, uh, you know. You didn't need to pitch him. He yeah. wasn't a month full rest. Right. And uh, that was that was what every Mets fan thinks. So it was good to get someone, you know, a vet on the road to tell me that as much. Yeah. Now, was anybody difficult to interview? I mean, they weren't forthcoming? Well, I would say when I did the 86 Mets book, um, you know, when I did the, the a lot, I talked to a lot of 73 guys, and I talked to a lot of 80s too. You know, a lot of them would thank me for, you know, not only going to ask about it, but like knowing what I was talking about as well. And, you know, when I did the 86 uh, team, it was really hard getting the interviews together. Um, you, you know, you had to know somebody and you had to be recommended. Some of them wanted me to pay them and some other stuff like that. And it, it uh, you know, it soured up a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm glad that I, I, I did that as well because it was like the one the one thing that people would always ask me is, when are you going to write a book about 86? And when yeah. I did that, I was like, okay, I've done it. I don't to hear that question anymore. Right, right. And that was a wonderful year. I mean, that was a wonderful team. And, you know, I mean, you almost being the... From your perspective as as a Mets historian, I mean, you, you almost had to write write one on '86. I mean, that would have, you know, would have been hard to imagine you not doing that. Well, 
I've written several uh, overall histories, so it, it comes up a bunch. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it can be hard. I try and write it differently each time, and uh, sometimes it can be hard, you know, doing it because you know, for people reading a book like that, you know that they know what happened, but you also have an obligation to tell what happened to somebody who doesn't know. Right. Someone who might come across this book twenty years from now and are like. You know, they don't know what happened. Right. <laughs> you know, you can't assume that, uh, you know, everybody, uh, you know, like, we've assumed, you know, Fred Merkel, everyone knows Fred Merkel didn't touch second base, but not right. like, who? Yeah. You know, people don't even know the New York Giants existed, much less Fred Merkel. No. So you have to kind of take it all the way, uh, because you never know who's going to pick up a ball. No, I, I agree with you. I've, I've, you know, uh, you know, people like you and I that have that, that knowledge of the game, we kind of, we tend to forget that there's people that don't have the same passion or, or knowledge of it. You know, we take it for granted. Um, um, you know what I was going to ask you, cause being, be, how, how often do you get to, uh, Citibank Park? Uh, uh, well, I go, I, I now live like, um, uh, in what they call the Hudson Valley, so it's like an hour and a half north, which is, you know, about an hour further than, um, where I used to live and where I grew up. But, um, so I don't get, so I don't get there as much, although I've, I've still gone there, the new park, as many as 20 times a year. But, yeah. uh, you know, I went to opening day sort of at the, at the last second I got invited and, um, uh, I'm open, you know, if I get to like five or six games, uh, that's uh, that's a that's a pretty good year. But uh, I, I, I do go to a lot of minor league games uh, as well when um, when I can. Oh, which minor league teams do you usually go to? Well, actually, for a while, I worked for a team in the the now defunct New York Penn League, uh, just sort of like in game day operations, because they knew someone that uh, that worked there, and so I, I went there. I actually went up there to do an interview, and then I stuck around um, for the '86 Mets book. They had uh, Ed Romero, who was on that Red Sox team, uh, was the manager, and so I interviewed him, and I stuck around for the game, and. My uh, friend said, "Do you want to work here?" And I was like, "You know, I I uh, I need some meaningful employment." And uh, it was it was fun. Yeah. Um, but it, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> Major League Baseball <laughs> got rid of those uh, those teams right. in New York Penn League, and um, unfortunately, uh, mine was uh, was one of them. I'm actually yeah. going to see the Hudson Valley Renegades, who were one of the few um, teams that they. Uh, Salvage from that league, and they they uh, they threw them in another league. What they call that league now, I, I don't know. But uh, mm. so uh, yeah, I'm sort of between the Hudson Valley Renegades and uh, Troy. Troy still has an independent league team, so I do uh, go up there a couple of times. But uh, you know, I was able to bow out gracefully for working up there because, like you know, it's like watching baseball. Working for a baseball team is kind of a grind because you know there's uh, they play every day. Right. Right. Well, I, I actually, um, I spent a year in the press box with the, uh, Somerset Patriots. That's, you know, when they were, you know, an independent, uh, league team, not, um, not as a Yankee yeah, affiliate. They, yeah, they, yeah they, that was one of the strangest things about that is they took some teams that had been a long time independent teams and sort of uh, moved them up, like the St. Paul Saints as well, yeah. and Somerset, and, um, and then there was a bunch uh, that had been around for decades that uh, just got the uh, got eighty six. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the Patriots, you could almost expect that they were going to be a Yankee affiliate. I mean, when I was in the press box, a person that I spoke to quite often was, you know, Sparky Lyle, who's the manager there. And then he was the uh, he was sort of like a mask. Well, I mean, there is a mascot called Sparky also. But, you know, him and, and uh, you know, Montefusco used to be there and and uh I used to see Craig Nettles was there every so often, you know, because his son had had played for the uh, the Patriots. But but uh, it's a you know it's a class operation. They have a nice field. They have a nice you know the location is great. So you know it didn't really surprise me that they they ended up being a Yankee affiliate. But what, the reason um, I had first asked you about the uh, going to Citibank Park or City yeah City Park was. Uh, what do you think of the Tom Seaver statue? I've only seen pictures of it. Well, I did go on opening day. I, I will say it was so crowded, uh, I could not get even remotely close to it. Oh. And um, but you know, uh, I I haven't been back since then. But um, I'm hoping to go soon. But uh, in the last few days, they've actually I have like a breaking news is um, there's like. Apparently, the, the font on the back of his jersey is somehow different than it's supposed to be. Oh, really? Which, which uh, yes, I actually know the guy who came up with that, and that's, uh, you know, it was a good scoop for him, but I, I can't, you know, I, it's not, um, um, I can't imagine that, you know, to me, it's not a big deal. Right. Um, in any event, I mean, it's a big deal. It's a much bigger deal that they waited until Tom Seaver had died before they put it up because you know they could have put up a statue for him in 1960 you know 1970 right. um and it would have been uh, fitting um you know much less waiting until uh after he had uh, passed on but at least they were able to do it you know just like gil hodges finally got in the hall of fame as well as widow was still around the same with uh, nancy Seaver. yeah um she and her family were able to all come there and appreciate it and um and that was really nice yeah I mean, uh, and, and I think it looks good. And that you know, um, uh, it it's, it definitely captures him, and uh, long overdue. Well, you know, from like I said, I've only seen the pictures of it, but the uh, it definitely depicts way, you know, how Tom looked when he was pitching. I mean, it really captured that. I mean, you know, being a pirate fan, I mean, the pirates are famous for their statutes, you know, between Roberto and, and Pops and, and Bill Mazeroski and stuff. But, uh, you know, so, and, and they all, you know, depict, you know, each of those players. But I thought that showing Tom, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised they don't have like <clears throat> some dirt on his knee, you know, cause he used to, you know, that was the big thing with Tom when he was pitching, pushing off. I mean, his, his right knee would be, you know, scraping the ground. That's where he, he had such power when he, you know, he was a power pitcher. But, uh, so, um, your Mets are having a pretty good season. What do you, did, is that surprising to you or? You know, having done the, uh, having followed them for fifty something years, um, it, it makes me wary more than anything. Oh, really? <laughs> Just because uh, you know, last year they got up to a great start and actually were were leading for and, and well into you know into August and then fell off a cliff. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, I've I've always been the I'd rather be you know does okay in the first half and really does well in the second half than the yeah. opposite, which. 
it's kind of frustrating. But they're really playing well, I think, as a team. Last year, you really felt um, they had a lot of guys hurt. So they were doing with a lot of mirrors and a lot of guys that you never even heard of or, you know, you thought had, had retired five years ago. Right, right. And um, this year seems more genuine. They have a lot of, uh, you know, good ball players, and the Buck Walter really has them uh, on all cylinders. I mean, they, they had one game where they... Um, um, they took. They were. They were going to. They had. They were going to do a, a field play at third base, and uh, Oliver Perez, ironically a former Met and a former Pirate, for that matter. Um, was He's still mound. around, Oliver Perez. He's still around. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't and even know that. He, he was run out of town in New York in 2010, and it's you know a dozen years later, and he's still gainfully employed. And um, they 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 have a play. They had a actually play set up where the guy on first took off for second, but and uh, Oliver Perez turns around to look at him and and he's trying to figure out where he should throw it, and he doesn't throw it anywhere. And uh, they said that once he he looked towards another base, the um, appeal play was nullified, and you know it was like a delayed steal. So they got the stolen base and and that and I, I not only had I never heard of it, I couldn't believe that um, they had actually practiced that in spring training. That was that was a play like <laughs> Joe Walter making signs from the dugout. I was like, wow, that's that's attention to detail right there. Well, you know, you know, it's funny. I I love Buck Showalter by by the way, and I remember when they. When seeing that he was, uh, they were signing him and stuff, I said, that's big. That's really big. That might be the biggest signing that they have. I mean, the man is, uh, the, the only thing is I think he, uh, he has a tendency to wear, well, I, I want to say wear out is welcome, but then again, he was with Baltimore for all those years. I mean, and there was a lot of frustrating seasons, but, you know, he's, he's a, Brilliant baseball mind for sure. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I, I do think he's mellowed um, a bit too. Uh, you know, I, I, I well, my year that I covered um, the Mets and Yankees the most for a radio station was when he was managing uh, the Yankees, and he was, um, you know, not as quite as fun loving as he seems now, but he, you know, he definitely knew his uh, his stuff, and it's good to see him. Um, you know, the other manager I covered that year was Dallas Green, and he's been dead for I think probably ten years, at least ten years or so. Oh yeah, he was the Mets manager that year, yeah. and so I, I kept going back and forth to the to, to the two of them. But uh, Buck, you know, you, you know, he he knew what he was doing, but he was a little, you know, uh, married to the rules a little bit and how everything had to be. He's very hands on, any you know, as it is, but I think he's mellowed a little bit all these years in baseball and you know uh you know he's gone back and forth to the booth in between um, assignments too and he's married and he's married he's managed in a few different places uh you know texas and oak uh, not oakland but baltimore and arizona you know essentially did everything the diamondbacks you know some of the stuff they still used he designed in the, in, uh, the mid 90s after he left the yankees right no. 
Yeah. Hey, well, how old is Buck now? Buck's... Uh... He's uh, 65, I saw. Or he's like over... So they had a bunch of managers that were... They had an article about managers over, over 65. But I think he's 65, if not 66, maybe, or so. But there's like seven or eight managers that are uh, in that bracket, which is the most... It might have, maybe the most they've ever had. Wow. Um, I can't quite recall, but it was it was a lot of them, you know, going all the way up to Tony LaRusso, who's, yeah. you know, uh, close to 80. Wow. Well, you know, I'm 65, and I, I retired from uh, coaching youth baseball about six or seven years ago. I couldn't imagine. I can't even imagine uh, coaching a Babe Ruth team right now. <laughs> well, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with that age group, too, I mean, uh, you know, they probably would have told me I was an idiot. So, it's like, you know, I wouldn't have the respect that, uh, you know, like someone like Buck Schultwater would would have. Um, okay, what what is there any Met that you wish you would have seen play? Um, you know, at this point, I've seen most of them. Right. Um, I'm trying to think. There was someone I was that I was thinking. You know, uh, well, I guess maybe, I guess maybe Nolan Ryan because you know you hear so much about him. And it was definitely before I was involved. Tug McGraw. Right. Um. He got traded just before I got into the whole thing, and he's as much a reason as any anyone that they won the 1973 um, pennant, and uh, you know almost uh, won the won the World Series as well. So um, I would say that those two are a couple that I would really have uh, have liked to see, and maybe some you know. Uh, uh, other than you know some some random Mets uh, you know former players and um, like uh, you know it would be interesting to see Gil Hodges play although he was really running on uh, on fumes at the time but right. like Ron you know Ron Hunt uh, you know he was probably the first legitimate you know All Star type player they had uh, and he was he was the, uh, the first All Star starter they had and. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of anyone else that was uh, that was before that. Yeah, Willie Mays. Yeah, I never, mm -hmm. I didn't get to see Willie Mays play uh, for the Mets or for anybody else, and that would have been uh, you know, something to see. Although he was also, you know, talking about running on fumes, but you know, he was still Willie Mays and was every now and then could uh, capture off some magic uh, with a, you know, a, a hit somewhere or you know, doing something um, Willie Mays esque, even if it was just playing first base. Well, you know, and I agree with, and I saw Willie play when he was with San Francisco also, but I um, I had an opportunity to see Mickey Mantle play his last year in person, and uh, I mean, he was, I don't even think there was fumes, I mean, it was, you know, but, but you know what, I can tell, you know, like, I can tell, you know, my son and you know, if if and when I, I have a grandson, I can say, yeah, Grandpa sold, you know, so Mickey Mantle play, you know, I would love, you know, I can say that. And uh, I, don't, I won't have to go into detail. I won't go into details saying, well, yeah, it was in 1968 or 60, you know, anything like that. But. Uh, well, it was like Hank Aaron. I would have liked to see him play. Um, but I, you know, I just did not uh, did not get there to see that. Um, but I did. 
I played that game I was mentioning where I had my first game at uh, Shea Stadium with the Yankees. Frank Robinson, uh, that was the year he, he uh, managed for the Indians and became the first African-American manager and mm. also a player manager, which even then was pretty rare. Right. And he made, he made the last out of the game. Set himself up as a pinch hitter. And Frank, Frank was, I mean, there's a Hall of Famer. I mean, you know, he's... You know Baltimore and Cincinnati, and and like you said, what he set, what he uh, did as a manager. You know, you know, being the first black manager. I mean, he was, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, definitely. And that's for a long time. I mean, he, he did not have any easy uh, stops. Everyone uh, place he went was, you know, was work. You know, he had to either San Francisco or uh, Baltimore or. You know, and, and usually left the team, and, and taking that team uh, to uh, Washington um, was not an easy uh, task either. Right, right. Well, that's true. Um, okay, um, as, as a writer, is there anybody that influenced you as, as a writer? I mean... Uh, you know, is there any baseball writer out there that you know that you were influenced by? Well, you know, there's um, uh, as far as um, guys that I that I always you know I would look if I could find that that, that this person said that this happened, I was like, okay, that that you know that settles it. I I, I will take that as uh, as gospel would be you know Jack Lang. Who was the um, was the Long Island Press writer? But I knew him when he went to the New York Daily News, and um, he was he even got in the middle of that whole um, thing between Dick Young and Tom Seaver, right. and was very took close with Tom Seaver, and he covered the Mets for uh, I think the first thirty years of their existence, and I have one of his books that I. You know, I've used so often, you know, the spine is cracked in the middle. Um, I, I'm looking at it right now. It's like sort of fused together and, like, take it out when you really need to look at it. And uh, and above that one is Leonard Coppett's New York Mets, and he was the uh, New York Times uh, writer for the um, uh, for the, that covered the Mets. And, uh, you know, uh, some of the other uh, guys that I would come across would be, like, Joe Durso, who also – was a Times writer, and he wrote for, um, he also wrote Tug McGraw's book, uh, Screwball, which is uh, one of the better um, uh, player biographies uh, that I've read as far as uh, entertaining, and was, you know, uh, in trying to capture Tug McGraw for, you know, uh, since he had died when I, had, he'd already been dead for a few years when I started working on that book, it really sort of captured, um, you know, his essence, and had a lot of good good stuff in it. So, um, uh, you know, and I love doing those things. I actually, usually when I do that, I take like a whole, uh, I, take, it's, I take so many notes from some of these books. They, they give me, I, you know, things to check or, you know, things to mull over because you know, a lot of time I, I, you know, started, uh, been a reporter uh, growing up, and um, I just find that when I write it out, even if I, you know, type it out or write it by hand, I, you know, it gets me thinking about the whole subject. So, you know, I, I find that when I read books like that, I end up, it turns into like a book reporter <laughs> because I'm, 
you know, I'm stopping to take notes. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. I have to keep separate notes on ideas I have based on something that happened in the book. And, you know, sometimes it can take me weeks to finish writing up all the notes for a book that I read in like, you know, six days or something. What I would, um, you know, as you saw, because you've seen the questions I sent you, I have I have a bunch of names that I want to get your impression about. So I'm going to give you a name. And if you could share what your impression of of that person uh, is, uh, for instance, uh, Joan Payson. I mean, I remember Joan Payson, you know, from being an owner of the Mets and her love of the game. Do you have any impression from what you've read about it? Because I know that she would be before your time because I believe she died in, what, 74 or 75? Uh, so, well, she and uh, Casey Stingle died uh, a week apart when I, like during yeah. that first year yeah. at the end of the uh, season. And, yeah. you know, I, I will say that um, uh, Kiner, Murphy, and Nelson did such a good job of Essentially schooling, you know, home, talk about homeschooling, you know, watching the games on TV that by the time that the two of them died, I knew so much about them. I felt like, you know, my grandmother died at that same time and I felt worse about the two of them than and my, uh, you know, than my uh, great grandmother who, who wasn't as easy to get along with as those two seemed. And, um, you know, uh, so I, and, you know, I, I, I can still tell the 76 Mets when they see a picture of them because they have that black armband on there. Right. Not to be confused with the black armband that they wore differently when they did it for Yale Hodges. Right. But, um, you know, to those, to, to, to me, that's like Ma and Pa met, uh, Joan Payson and uh, Casey Stingle. Um, and they're as much reason, uh, for the Mets existing as anybody, especially Joan Payson. Who they're never, you know, she's the first owner to to go in from scratch. The, the other few owners that have been that were that were women were um, they had ended up um, inheriting it from their 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 husband or a family member or something like that. Yeah, like Joan and, Joan Croc and you know people like that. that yes, know. and even you know um, uh, Margaret Rosa, Robinson and right. going back to the. 1910s in St. Louis and a few others and uh, but she you know was was all there and uh, you know she was such a presence that her family tried to you know being told onto the team for another five years after that because that was what you know she had wanted but um, it's it's hard to maintain that level of uh, excitement especially when things between the time that she died and they sold the team the, the way baseball was run changed a lot right right and then uh well you know like I, the first two people on my list was joan payson and casey stangle which you know the thing with casey that a lot of us and i imagine people that that didn't know a whole lot about him is you know we think some people might think of him as a buffoon and stuff but I was good friends with a guy named Wally Westlick, who actually had uh, Casey as a, a manager out on the Pacific Coast League, and said he he had a brilliant baseball mind. I mean, we, you know, we think with the Yankees, I mean, you know, you had a pretty nice hand to deal, you know, dealt a, a pretty nice hand, you know, with all those stars. But the Casey really knew the game of baseball, and. Uh, I think what he did, you know, as a as a Mets manager, he deflected a lot of, you know, because when when they came into existence, 
I mean, they weren't very good, but Casey Stengel was able to, uh, I guess, deflect, uh, deflect that, that type of criticism. But, um, yeah. He was, he was the perfect, uh, first manager for the Mets. The, uh, and, uh, the, because the Angels and, uh, the new Washington Senators, uh, well, especially the Angels kind of came out of the, the, the uh, the gate hot as an expand, the first expansion team, you know, the American League had ever had. Right. Um, so when the National League came about, they took away some of the things that um, uh, uh, the, the way of player procurement that had helped the Angels and really stuck the Mets and the Astros uh, with the dregs. Uh, you know, they either had guys who were never going to be pro- who were never going to be legitimate players or guys that you know, as, uh, as we've already said several times, okay. running on fumes. And the right. Mets had plenty of those guys, and the Mets. You know, seemed to, uh, realizing how bad they were going to be, um, had a bunch of guys who really had nothing left but were names. And uh, they figured if they're going to be bad, they might as well be bad with people somebody's heard of. Now, what about Gil Hodges? I've read in a lot of books and uh, people I spoke to, I mean, there was such respect for him. I mean, did you hear the same? Because you interviewed a lot of people or, or, uh, that played, you know, were former players. I mean, Buddy Harrelson thought the world of him, and I know Tom Seaver did. I mean, uh, what do you have to, what could you say about Gil Hodges that, um. Well, the, uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the, the players all, all did seem to, to love him or, uh, you know, at least treat him with, uh, you know, kind of like the love you would have for your dad or some strict, really strict uncle or, you know, the drill sergeant in a battle situation, um, uh, or your, you know, your sergeant in a, in that kind of a thing. And he was a sergeant in the Marines in Okinawa. <laughs> so, um, he, uh, you know, sort of, and, and, you know, in that situation, you would have guys of the same age that he had, uh, for the, you know, with the team. And he did, uh, a, an incredible job and was very, uh, you know, could be tough on the players and expected a lot from them. But, uh, between him and Seaver really did a lot to change the attitude that they had that, you know, this team was just, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a good old joke. Right. Um, and even, you know, in the last few years, I mean, the, the, the Rays, you know, when they were called the Devil Rays, really worked absolutely terrible. And you couldn't even see how they were ever going to be good. And then, you know, they changed that whole persona. And, and you know, I, with them, it ironically came with changing the name of the team. But... You know, that there comes a time when you need, you know, you need to, to create, um, your own, your own team, you know, something that, that has a future, uh, or it becomes like the new Washington Senators who, who Gil Hodges actually managed before he left for the Mets and, uh, they ended up have they ended up moving, you know, 10 years after they were formed. To Texas and became the Rangers, and they'd had, you know, after Gil Hodges was there, they went with uh, an even bigger name named Ted Williams, who had one really good year, and uh, then kind of seemed to lose interest, as did everyone in Washington. Well, I, I interviewed a couple people that, uh, you know, played for the Senators for Ted, and uh, 
uh, like Tom Grieve. I don't know. You must know Tom Grieve. He was. He was a, he was a Met very briefly. Yep. And, uh in the late 70s. Yeah, and he said that, uh, he says, yeah, he says, he says, I don't think Ted ever wanted to be a manager. <laughs> it was like, you know, he had no real interest in it, but I guess, um, was it Bob Short? I guess Bob Short was the, uh, was he the manager that brought him, but it was, uh, I guess he gave him a deal that he couldn't refuse, and, uh, you know, Ted came yeah. out of, Ted came out of retirement for it. But, you know, I was, I was thinking about the Rays, like you said, with the name change and stuff, but um, also uh, someone named Silverman had a lot to do with the Rays getting uh, legitimacy. That's true. Uh, uh, Matt Silverman, I, I knew yeah. someone had, uh, you know, people would ask me if that was me, and I was like, well, yeah. he, went to, he went to Harvard and is running a baseball team. Right. So, and I'm talking to you, so yeah. no. <laughs> but, um, uh, it is, uh, he, he, he did, he's done an amazing job there. I mean, to be honest, they, they're kind of like, they remind me of the Expos, if the Expos had a lot of success, you know, because right. the Expos would get these guys, they trade them, and then they would sort of go down hill a little bit, and they had a you know, really good manager in Philippe Lou, but the, uh, uh, Rays just seemed to have a system where not only did they get these guys from nowhere and they are, they turn into, really good players, but when they send them somewhere else, they turn back into the nobody that right. they seem to be. Right. So uh, it's like you almost don't even want to, to take any, you know, do a trade with them because you're afraid that you're going to get, you know, uh, actually one of the few trades they made that didn't work out that great was the Scott Casimir deal where everyone here thought that the whole world was coming to an end because they traded uh, their top prospect for uh, a, a handful of beans. And, uh, you know, he had a couple of really good years, but he kind of fizzled out, too. Yeah, he never did pan out. I remember, uh, you know, wa you know, watching him or, you know, before that happened. And, uh, you know, I thought he was going to he was going to be one of the top echelon pitchers and, uh, at some point. But, you know, it never seemed to pan out. Um, how about Buddy Harrelson? I know you said he was a great interview and stuff. Uh, I mean, he was a tremendous shortstop. I mean, he was from the days like you had Mark Belanger and Buddy, Buddy Harrelson, yeah. and you had shortstops that batted like 230, but they could, you know, a ball. In a good year. Right, in a good year, exactly. But I mean, Eddie Pursuit, uh, not Eddie Pursuit, uh, Eddie Brinkman comes to mind also, who yes. was, you know, a defensive whiz, but, you know, he batted like 229 or, you know, something like that. But what, um, can you add anything on, on Buddy Harrelson that you didn't say before? Well, I mean, you know, he's, I, and to be honest, I don't know that a lot of those guys would be regular shortstops today. I don't even know if they would make a team now that they've added a couple more guys to the, um, the rosters or, you know, the rosters aren't quite as tight as they used to be. And now you don't have a DH, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about pinch hitters. You maybe you can carry guys like that, uh, you know, but they do seem to just want to carry more pitchers. Right. That there's just no place for those guys. And that's what, um, you know, guys like Bud Harrelson that, you know, I, I, I looked at a lot of the stuff for 1969 and they had it set up where he would bat either second or eighth. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, th- those, that's really extreme, but that was his kind of thing where he was, you know, was fast, he could bunt, he could, you know, um, hit a bunch of triples, you know, every two or three years he might hit a home run out of, that went over the fence and, um, you know, was, was as steady as she goes in the field. And it says a lot about the Mets when, uh, Gil Hodges, uh, platooned a lot. Uh, especially in 69 and he was he was the only infielder that played every day when he wasn't in military uh you know service um which came up a lot uh that year um but uh you know he was he was a really valuable player and they they met you know uh it was weird because when i was first getting into the mets he was injured most of that year and everyone will talk about him. You're like, oh, when Bud Harrelson comes back, it's going to be amazing. And I'm looking at this guy, and I was like, hmm. I'm 11 years old, and I, I, and I'm almost as big as this guy, right. you know. But but he he knew how to play, and you know you have to watch out for guys that are little that make it to that point because they are made of strong stuff. It was like the last guy I remember that was like that was. Um, uh, Eckstein with the Cardinals. It looked like he mm-hmm. was throwing a hand grenade every time he threw to first base, but, you know, he was a shortstop on a World Series winning game. Like, Craig Council was, uh, was the same kind of uh, ball player. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Um, how about Cleon Jones? Uh, Cleon Jones was, um, uh, probably, you know, if you were, uh, and I, I, it's been a while since I did it, but whenever I would try and put together, you know, greatest net roster or by position, I still, you know, as far as, certainly as far as Mets who came through the system, he's still one of the top players they've ever had. You know, even as far as outfielders go, you know, over time, you know, you've had Beltran and you've had, um, Daryl Strawberry and, you know, so a few other guys that were, that, you know, probably were better than him, or at least looking at the numbers. But, you know, he he brought a, a lot to the team. Uh, you know, almost won a batting championship in 1969 for a team that had no hitting at all. Right. And, you know that. You know, they they had pitching to, to to spare in droves, but you know, their hitting they you know they managed to score just enough runs to win. And uh, Cleon was used, you know in the middle of that lineup. Also started the All Star game that year. And, uh, um, you know, it's kind of forgotten now, but when he retired in, well, he, it, we don't have enough time to go into how he left the Mets in 1975. <laughs> but when he left the Mets in 1975, he owned pretty much every rec- offensive record they had. And eventually Ed Cranepool surpassed them all because he played so long. And then eventually David Wright surpassed a lot of those records. Yeah. So, you know, uh, other people, a lot of guys have filled in the spots there, but those are pretty much your three record keepers for a lot of uh, your top Mets um, least longevity numbers. And and he was, uh, you know, he caught the ball that um, uh, ended the World Series in 1969. And as a Pirates fan, you may recall the ball on the wall play. Oh. The ball hit the top of the fence and came right in. Dave Augustine never hit a home run. I know. And I know. That was the one. And, and you know, I would all, not even 99 times out of 100, I'd say 999 times out of 1,000, a ball that hits the top of the fence just keeps going over and it's a home run. Yep. And somehow it bounced right back and they got Richie Disk in the plate. And yep. Ron Hodges slapping on the deck. Yep. And, uh, 
You know, and he was right in the middle of all those things, had the good World Series. And then, um, you know, it kind of caught up with him. And one of the other things that was really weird, he's not on the list, but he and Tommy Agee essentially grew up together in, uh, in, in the Mobile, Alabama area. And Dan ended up being on the, in the same, you know, standing next to each other in the same outfield, which is a miracle in its own right that all those coincidences could happen. Tommy, yeah, Tommy Agee was uh, was kind of amazing. Well, you know who was a big um, uh, advocate for him was Gil Hodges. Gil Hodges uh, yes. thought, you know, he's the one I guess that that told management says you got to get me this guy, you got to get me this guy. When he was with the White Sox, I mean, uh, Tommy Agee was, uh, you know, he was a, a decent ball player. I I interviewed uh, Tommy John. And Tommy John has uh, nothing but nice things to say about Tommy Agee, you know, because they played in the minors together and then they played for Cleveland and, and then they went on to the White Sox. But I'm going to skip a lot of the uh, the players here and ask you, but you know who I wanted to, um, to talk to you about is uh, George Foster. Now, he, he had actually... He had a bigger role in the, the Mets' success than what a lot of people think. I mean, uh, he kind of gave legitimacy to to the Mets, it seems, you know, when they traded for him, like sort of like, hey, they're they're trying to do something here, wouldn't you say? Or they yeah, it showed that they were trying, um, uh, but it did you know? They just happened to, uh, and it kind of started a whole. Um, Scenario that um, you know, people like to point to that they've just never been able to get someone who was a big star for another team to come to New York and be a big star, which is untrue because you had Keith Hernandez, you had Mike Piazza, you had a lot of guys who've done that. But uh, George, uh, you know, he, when he was playing for the uh, Reds, uh, you know, they moved Pete Rose to third base without really even doing so much as hitting him a couple ground balls because they're like, we have to get George Foster out there and if all the balls go through Pete Rose, you know, it, it's okay. Foster will pick him up, throw him in a second and, 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 and you know, and he'll be able to knock him home, uh, make up those runs in the bottom of the inning and he did. And had, you know, his 52 home runs was 150 runs batted in in 1977. Uh, I, with, between him, Seaver, and the two-time big red machine, I, you know, the, it makes you realize how good that Dodgers team must have been to be able to fend them off. Right. Um, uh, that, um, and, and Dylan, it's funny that he moved, because uh, like I said, I grew up down on the border of Connecticut and New York, and he lived in, in Greenwich, Connecticut, which a lot of that did at the time. And he lived right near a friend of mine, and uh, we saw his whole house get built. And, uh, you know, you'd see him drive to, you know, to the Mets game and stuff like that. Even if we're going to the Mets game, we're sitting there, uh, hanging out, playing wiffle ball with like hours to go before we go to the game. And he's leaving, you know, at one o'clock in the afternoon or whatever time they go down to go to the ball game. And, uh, you know, when I first saw him before he got traded, I saw him driving around in Greenwich. Um, and he had, uh, like a red, uh, Mercedes or something like that. I'm like, that's George Foster. And then a couple weeks later, he got, um, 
you know, traded to the to the Mets. And you know, I was like, you know, that was my first scoop, and I didn't I didn't realize it because I was still in <laughs> high school. <laughs> So I guess he was scouting out, you know, places to uh, to live before the trade, or you know, like you know, taking them out. Because at the time, the Reds were starting to get rid of a lot of them. The Mets, the next year, the Mets got Tom Seaver, kind of the same thing, where they were they were um, sort of, you know, Johnny Bench was retiring. They were getting rid of a lot of those guys. Uh, I'm still amazed Dave Concepcion lasted the whole time there. Well, you know, it's funny when you said about seeing George Foster and stuff. I remember there were days like, you know, a big scoop was like, uh, you know, if there was like uh, an impending trade that was almost going to happen. And all of a sudden you hear you hear about this player. Oh, well, you know, he's looking for homes in this area. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? And the next thing, you know, a couple of weeks later, you hear, oh, he got traded yeah, to the... Now, now it would be a scoop because I'd be able to take a photo of it, get it up uh, online five minutes later. Yeah. And the next thing you know, it's like breaking, you know, trending or whatever. Right, right. It'd be on Twitter and everything, right? Everyone, you know, with the, uh, you know, their camera phones and stuff. Okay, the next five players that I wanted to ask you about were all from that 86 team. So you're very familiar with it. Now, Daryl Strawberry, what can we say about Daryl? Well, you know, he, um, uh, you know, as uh, star-crossed as any Met probably ever, but I did get to see his first hit. Um, he was on that team with George Foster uh, year after George got there. And... He sort of provided some protection for him. I think he out homered uh, Foster that year, right. and uh, and, his, and he won Rookie of the Year. And I did see his first hit, and you know, only in New York, you know, a guy comes up as this you know phenomena. He has that name that you know I, I've seen many, many minor league games, and you, you have to really work to remember some of these names, you know. Oh, sure. I, I, yeah. But but Strawberry. You remember, you know, yeah. and it's just one of those names that everybody remembers and everybody always expected a lot of them, kind of like Billy Dean, except that there was like, you know, two of them. Right. But, uh, you know, or Ronald McDonald, he never made it. But <laughs> I remember those two, like, those two names you could not forget. But Billy, you know, those three, Billy Dean, Ronald McDonald, and Bell Strawberry were all in that minor league system. And Strawberry was going to play the big star. And uh, he really was, uh, you know, um, he was kind of, you know, I don't know, petulant. Just didn't, it didn't always seem like he wanted to be there, but he had a lot of other stuff going on, and uh, you know, um, uh, he hit some really big home runs that, you know, by big and key moments, and big, you know, some really really long home runs. Uh, you know, they had uh, uh, three runs. The Mets were down four nothing. The first playoff game that I'd ever experienced at Chase Stadium. And they were down four nothing after a couple of innings, and they scored a run, and then he, you know, hit a home run over the auxiliary scoreboard, and next thing you know, and it's it's the game's tied. And he hit um, the the only hit the Mets got off Nolan Ryan uh, a few days later in the uh, uh, game game five of the playoffs, uh, when uh, Nolan Ryan was you know probably better than he was in one or two of his uh, no hitters, and they found out later on he was essentially pitching uh, with a broken bone. <laughs> Right. Now, what can you say about Dwight Gooden? I mean, that that uh, eighty-five. I guess eighty-five was his first year, right? 
Well, no, 85 was his, you know, his big year. 84 was his rookie year. Right. And he, he and I, he and I are essentially a few months apart, uh, in age. And so, you know, I'm like a dopey college freshman. <laughs> and I'm like, this guy is my age. And you're, you're looking at this guy. And even in a spring training game, I, I you know, I was watching him, watching him on TV and I'm like, oh gosh. Yeah. And then he, you know, they kept him on the team. Um, you know, I was, uh, I'm listening to this book, uh, Devin Gordon's A Million Ways to Lose. Um, you know, and, there, there, and some of that he goes over the what ifs of Daryl Strawberry and the what ifs of Dwight Gooden. And it's like, well, what if they had, you know, Mets had kept him in the minor leagues for another couple of years? But in the minor leagues, he struck out 300 guys at Lynchburg in like 180 innings. It's like, You've got nothing else to prove there. They could have, you know, kept him for a couple more months, I guess in 84, but, you know, the, uh, once he came along, the bets were legitimate and he, as much as any of the other guys on the, on the list here, uh, really turned that team around. And the Mets went from, you know, drawing, uh, lucky to draw a million, you know, two to drawing, uh, you know, more than the Yankees, drawing, you know, drawing uh, two plus million people when that was a huge number and you know when he's pitching and suddenly there's parts of Shea that haven't been disturbed for years because no one's been sitting there yeah. and uh, the games were, were real happenings when he pitched and um, you know I, I totally loved him and you know just like Somewhat, you know, and in the same way, uh, kind of feel let down by him, even though I should know better and I've got kids to play on and they mess up and all this. But, you know, you just, when you saw him pitch, it's like, oh, how are they not gonna just reel off? four or five world championships. Right, well, that was like the title of your book, right? A one-year dynasty, I mean... One-year dynasty. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what they had. It was it was amazing. And, you know, and, and you know, uh, had so many peaks and valleys. And, you know, his 86 was actually a really good year, but after going 24 and 4, uh, not uh, essentially not losing for like four months yeah. and uh, having a couple of other games where we pitched 10 innings and didn't get a decision uh, you know was just uh, it was it was incredible and in 86 he just wasn't quite as good and maybe it was you know he had started uh, using drugs but maybe right. you know his arm was getting a little worn out but you know uh, in the, the mid 80s if you had a guy that was pitching like him you would take him out to bring him a relief pitcher, they would have had a ride. Right, right, exactly. Okay, you know, what about... A guy that was that good, you would not take out unless he had nothing left. Right. Of course, nowadays it's it's different, but... Um, what do you have to say about Keith? I mean... Well, Keith is... Uh, well, you wrote a book with Keith, Keith right? I did do a book with Keith, and, uh, you know, personally, uh, you know, I, I, we don't, I, I have to, I'll be the first to admit, we don't hang out or anything, but a few times, including for the 86 folks, when I've had to sort of, you know, get back in touch with him after a couple years away, he couldn't have been, uh, just couldn't have been nicer, and, you know, um, is sort of, and at this point, it's a little bit like, I wouldn't want to call him a Mets grandpa, because that would make it sound old, but there's yeah. definitely a Mets great uncle 
Um, and when he arrived from St. Louis in that trade, um, when John Stern said uh, they must have been drunk when they made that deal in St. Louis, um, they uh, it, everything changed. Even though the team was not good, you were like, this guy is not coming here, you know, this isn't, you know, it's the Mets, so you were not sure what was going to happen, but you had a feeling that, um, you know, things were going to start getting better. And it, it still took, uh, you know, a few more months until 84, but, um, you know, his, his hands were all over that that year, and he had a great year in 85 uh, in, in some really difficult circumstances, you know, with the whole uh, trials in Pittsburgh and everything, right. too. And in 86, he was, you know, uh, uh, essentially the same uh, level leader that he was in 82 in St. Louis when, you know, you go from one minute, it's like, is he even doing anything in the series to him getting the crucial hit in Game 7, which is exactly what he did in the exact same situation against the uh, Brewers. What did you think about the kid, Gary Carter? I, he he was uh, a, a, you know a force as well uh, you know it was you know it was a tough time to be uh, someone who was really clean cut but um, you know as time's worn on it's uh, you're like he's the one everyone should have been admiring and a lot of people did yeah but. Um, uh, you know, he was, he was really something and playing on, you know, knees that were pretty much worn out from catching every day and playing in Montreal and, you know, just wear and tear over the years and just always gave it everything he had. I got to, um, you know, uh, with him and, you know, like, oh, I can't wait to, you know, they, he he did a book with with Triumph Books the same time I did, and they took me to meet him at a signing that we all gave in uh, New Jersey. And he's like, "Oh, I can't wait to read your book." And I'm like, "Of course you, of course you're not gonna read it." But it's so nice, you know, it's so nice of you to say that, you know. Yeah. And uh, and he uh, and, and you know uh, for the '86 book uh, that I did, he had died a couple years before. And I, I met with his, uh, his wife and one of his daughters. I talked to, um, a couple of, the, I, I talked to all of the kids and they all, you know, uh, couldn't have been, you know, more engaged with him. And it was like, it was, uh, uh, you know, that, that I think he would have been proud that he, you know, that he, you know, he was able to see that he got in the Hall of Fame, all this other stuff and all these accolades. But I think the, the way his kids came out, the way his whole family still did everything uh, for him, um, you know, and just the way that they went about it so sincere and so nice that uh, it was, um, you know, I think that he'd probably be more proud of that than he would be for um, a lot of the stuff he did. But I know that he was really, really happy to have gotten, you know, World Series ring. That to him, that was a lot of validation and he, uh, was right in the middle of it, uh, you know, uh, could have been the MVP of the World Series, but I think everybody was just happy that he ended up going there. Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. Okay, moving to a different era, what about the uh, David Wright? I mean, the yeah, David Wright is is kind of like, uh, I wouldn't say a poor man's Gary Gerter, but, he, you know, he, he, except his, the big difference with him is he was, you know, you're a quote-unquote homegrown Met, and 
you know, um, I remember seeing him play in in the first year, and you know the the uh, I think it was the last Expos game, and they were played at Shea Stadium. We had this field right off third base and the field boxes, and he and uh, uh, he just takes off for third, you know, like a double steal that they pulled off for the pitcher. Still got the ball in his hand, and they both go diving into the bases. And, you know, you see him get up and, you know, this team is, is terrible. Their manager is in the last game, uh, and he's like so exuberant. I'm like, please don't let this guy get hurt. <laughs> and he did eventually get hurt, but, you know, he gave, he gave the Mets some, some great years, uh, in there. Um, you know, he had a couple of years where you're like, that just didn't work out and they ended up, uh, getting knocked out of uh, contention in the most excruciating fashion, but I do think the baseball gods gave him a uh, a wink when they um, let him come back after he'd been injured for most of the year in the 2015 team, and he was able to play in all those postseason games. And their turnaround, he had, when he came along, the team turned around and, and uh, overtook the Nationals, like within a, a few days, actually. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, he had the first home run by a Met at, uh, in the World Series at City Field. So that, you know, and so some, some moments like that were, were great. And, uh, uh, at least he got to get in the World Series. And, you know, um, uh, one of the few, uh, must go to games that I can recall at City Field, even though again it was a year where playing off the string team wasn't any good, was his last game, um, where he was really just a token thing, but everyone just wanted to um, uh, show his appreciation. Yeah. He went into extra innings before they put any extra runners on there, and I think if you told people that they were going to do it, they would have been like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But, um, cause the game, if scoreless goes like 12 innings or something, people fall asleep in the stands, but no one is leaving because they want to see David Wright come out at the very end. And the Mets win, you know, on uh, some, some, someone you've never heard of getting the game winning hit. And he came out and it was, uh, it was great that he, you know, it, to show the respect everyone had for him that you've still got a pretty much a full house and a meaningless game and, at the end of September, that's going on, you know, going on towards midnight, um, shows the perspective on that for him. And I had standing room only seats for that game, too, and was lucky to uh, get up. Yeah. I'm going, I'm going to, actually, I'm going to skip the lap because we've been going on for, we've been going on for quite a while. And, uh, but, um, the last question that I had written down there, um, do you have any plans for writing another book? Is there any book that you have in the works or thinking about or? You know, I had a book in mind on uh, baseball in the 1920s, and that specific topic, someone just revealed they were they signed a contract to do. So uh, I'm sort of rejiggering it, but I bought a bunch of books on that period. And, um, you know, I'm not averse to doing another book on the Mets, but I've found uh, over the years that actually the 73 and the 86 book were two of the, I think... And I did a book on the Mets uniform numbers. Right. Those are the three books that I actually went out and, um, uh, and the Mets uniform book, uh, I did with John Springer, who had a website, uh, about that. And, um, uh, the other ones that mostly people have come to me. So I'm, I, I, if somebody wants to come to me with an idea or, you know, publisher or somebody, uh, I am always game to talk about that. But to be honest, I don't really have anything I, that, about the Mets that I want to, 
write about that I haven't worked on. <laughs> to be honest, they, they did, there was a book in uh, 1999 I found really intriguing. Um, but for a bunch of different reasons, they, you know, they, they came back. Actually, they beat the Pirates uh, after they were pretty much knocked out the, to the last three games of the season to force a one-game playoff. They won the playoff and beat the Diamondbacks. Uh, they had the Grand Slam single and some other stuff that happened. And so uh, I'm going to play on a book on that a couple of years ago, and I'm like, there's no real reason for me to do something on that. So that was probably the last frontier that I really felt I needed to do something on. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll see. Maybe someone, maybe it'll work out with somebody to do something. And I still have MetSilverman.com, where I, I write about the Mets every now and then. Yeah. And, uh you know, I've, I've, you know, I've done most of the stuff with the Mets that I think I can do. We had a magazine for like four years as well, uh, preseason magazine. Um, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been editing and doing a lot of other stuff that's even non-sports related. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been fun doing it, but I'm, I'll always do some more. But, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, see what, what, people have to say i've kind of i've kind of had said all i think i've that i that i've got so far on right. that until someone comes up with a better idea i'm like oh i can i can say a lot of stuff about that well whatever you decide to do matt i i think will be uh would be great and uh i'll look forward to reading that so uh i want to thank you for uh chatting with us today anyway you have a great day matt and it was it was wonderful talking with you, and I hope that we see each other in Baltimore. Well, I look forward to that. Thanks, Bob. Okay, Thanks for man. Me on. All right. All right. Take care. The phrase "the apple doesn't fall far from the tree" was meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So, to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast. The baseball doesn't fall far from the tree in his honor. If you have any questions about today's program, you can contact us via email at rvhurte at gmail.com. And if you're interested in our new book, Intelligent Influence in Baseball, you can also send us an email and we will let you know how you can order it. In the immortal words of the famous baseball journalist, Red Smith, baseball is a dull game only for those with dull minds.